Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Gab National Park is located at Watson's Bay in the upmarket eastern suburbs of Sydney, Australia. Amongst dense rainforest foliage and Norfolk pine trees, the path winds along the ocean lookout, which boasts spectacular views from the exposed coastline that drops off sharply to the Tasman Sea, which meets the Pacific Ocean. Every year on December 26th, crowds of spectators flock to this prime vantage point to witness a field of yachting competitors sailing past as the flotilla makes its way down the east coast of Australia. In the famous and grueling Sydney to Hobart yacht race, the waters off the gap can be treacherous and unforgiving. Along the sandstone cliff edge, the jagged rock face has a steep drop to the flat wave cut ledge and rocks below, which are lashed by rough swells of the ocean. On winter evenings, you feel the brunt of the cold, Blowing up from the south, the ocean is obscured by darkness. The only sounds are the rushing and blustering winds and the surf crashing on the rocks, 85 meters below. For all its beauty and stunning views to the horizon, the gap has a darker and more melancholy side, dating back to the 1860s. Floral tributes can regularly be found at the spot having been placed in somber commemoration by family and friends, in memory of those who have taken their lives on the edge of the coast, or those who have slipped and died accidentally. On the winter evening of August 5th, 2013, Teresa Marsden was worried. Her eldest daughter, 20-year-old Renee, had earlier gone out for dinner with her colleagues in the eastern suburbs, but hadn't returned home. Teresa and Renee were as close as any mother and daughter could be, and both cherished their close bond. Renee told Teresa everything about her life, was always in contact given she still lived at home, so her tardiness after the work function was odd. Renee loved socializing and hanging out with her friends and cousins. Wasn't into late-night partying, especially not on a weekend. Earlier that afternoon, Renee had arrived home from work early. She was upset and had been crying. Around the same time, Teresa had received a text message from Renee's boyfriend, Brayden, curly telling Teresa that Renee was threatening to kill herself. Brayden was in jail, serving a sentence for manslaughter, but he and Renee had constantly been in contact via text message for around 18 months. Their relationship had been tumultuous at times, but Renee was deeply in love with Brayden and was looking forward to his release later that year so they could plan their future together. Understandably, Concerned Teresa asked Renee if Brayden's message meant there was anything to worry about. Was it true that Renee was really considering suicide? Renee insisted she would never take her own life, telling Teresa, You don't have to worry about him anymore. I finally found out what he is all about. Teresa asked what Renee meant, to which Renee replied, Don't worry, Mom. It's all over. As far as Teresa understood it, 
It sounded like the relationship had ended. She, of course, hated seeing her daughter so bitterly disappointed, especially after all the effort she put into the long-distance relationship. But Teresa was entirely unhappy about the news. From time to time, she'd had concerns about the way Brayden often spoke to Renee, which upset her. But Teresa thought she still had time to convince her daughter that it was best that she end the relationship and instead focus on dating someone in the outside world. Renee reassured her mother everything was all right and drove away from the family's home in a red Mazda 2. At 5.49 p.m., she sent a text message to Teresa saying she loved her and that she was her best friend. Teresa wasn't initially overly concerned about the message, especially considering their frank and heartfelt discussion earlier that afternoon about the end of Renee's relationship with Brayden. Because Teresa was so close with her daughter, she felt it was a message more recognizing the unconditional love and support Renee felt as a result of their conversation. After receiving the message, Teresa tried calling Renee, but there was no answer. That same evening, with no sign of Renee, Teresa showed the message to a friend, who urged Teresa to contact the police. The fact that Renee hadn't been in contact since she sent the message and hadn't returned home were encouraging signs. Teresa and her husband, Mark, just wanted to know their daughter was okay. Little did the Marsden family know. That night was the beginning of their search for answers. But what happened to Renee? Part 1. An Old Soul Renee was born on October 15, 1992, in the southwest Sydney suburb of Fairfield. To Teresa and her husband, Jamie, the marriage ended while Renee was still a baby. But when she was around four years old, her mother, Teresa, met Mark Marsden. Mark was the only father Renee knew, and whose close bond was reflected in Renee's later decision to legally adopt his surname. In around 1997, Teresa and Renee moved in with Mark, the couple marrying in 2000. They went on to have three children and settled in the Hills District on the outskirts of Northwest Sydney. Even though there was an age difference of nine years with her brother and 13 years with her youngest sister, Renee adored her half-siblings. She had close and loving relationship with her many friends and family, including her cousins Michael, Stephanie, and Alana, whom she spent every weekend with at their grandmother's house, where they'd all have their regular spaghetti and meatball dinner. Renee's love for her younger sister was strong, and she delighted in mucking around with the younger girl in the family backyard on her push bike. As a youngster, Renee was spirited and outgoing. These qualities stayed with her as she grew, along with her kindness and thoughtfulness. Renee was a conscientious student who did well at school and developed a maturity beyond her years, which made her stand out amongst those her own age. Renee's mother, Teresa, told Obscura, Renee had a gift. She could relate to anyone. She was also a real joker. Her smile and laugh could light up a room. She trusted everybody. She didn't see bad in anybody. If he needed help, she'd be the first one there. Life was sunny for Renee, who started high school at Mount St. Benedict College, private Catholic girls' school in Pennant Hills in 2005. Renee continued to perform well academically, but that would all change two years later when Renee started ninth grade. Part 2. Bad Influence 
In 2007, 14-year-old Renee met and became friendly with a fellow Mount St. Benedict student, 14-year-old Camilla Zayden. Camilla lived with her parents and two siblings not far from Renee. During primary school, before she met Renee, Camilla was said to have bullied and threatened other students at her school. By the time Renee and Camilla became friends several years later, Renee had been in a relationship with a boy for most of the year. As Camilla and Renee's friendship grew closer and they spent more time together, Camilla made it clear she didn't approve of Renee's boyfriend, and the couple soon broke up. At one stage early in the friendship, Renee developed a crush on Camilla's brother. This never went anywhere, though, as Camilla wanted to spend all her time with Renee to the exclusion of others. As the year progressed, Camilla and Renee started skipping school together and smoking cigarettes. Renee got herself a part-time job at a hair salon working Thursday evenings and Saturdays. But much to her family's dismay, Renee's usually good grades slipped as she stopped performing well in class. There was also a marked shift in the way Renee now interacted with others. Gone was the bubbly, driven, and forthright teen. Always did her best in everything. In her place was a reserve, withdrawn wallflower, who had seemed to lose her usual motivation. Renee eventually confided in her cousin Stephanie that Camilla often pushed and punched her, which resulted in bruises. Stephanie was alarmed and advised Renee to end the friendship, but for some reason, Renee continued to hang out with Camilla. Renee didn't tell her family about the physical abuse, but Teresa noticed that Camilla's family seemed to indulge her. She was strong-willed, manipulative, seemed to get whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted it, and had little to no disciplinary boundaries. It seemed that no one could control her. The extent of Camilla's problematic behavior soon became known to Renee's parents. Renee told Teresa that Camilla pinned her up against the bathroom wall at school and behaved in a sexually aggressive manner. Teresa and Mark approached the school to see what they could do to address Camilla's inappropriate behavior towards their daughter. It was the first of several meetings the Marstons would have with the school. Concerned about the influence Camilla was having on Renee, Camilla's physical abuse of Renee continued into 2008, but as far as the Marsdens were aware, Camilla wasn't really on the scene. In mid-2008, Renee confided in her cousin Stephanie that Camilla had attempted to kiss her on several occasions. Sometimes this was accompanied by physical violence, followed by contrition and manipulative sexual advances. Renee swore Stephanie to secrecy about Camilla's behavior, but Stephanie was by now so concerned for Renee's safety that she disclosed the details of Camilla's behavior to Teresa. Disturbed by the revelation, Teresa confronted Renee about the nature of the friendship, who confirmed that it was abusive and that she was afraid of Camilla. Teresa's concerns only deepened when she found letters from Camilla to Renee. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that emails sent from Camilla to Renee during 10th grade said... I swear, babe, anyone who ever takes you away from me is going to be sorry. I'll be a kung fu panda and smash them. I swear to God, kid, you're going nowhere. Do you understand? You kill me, I will be your ghost. You hate me, I'll still love you. Run away, chase you, you hide, I will hunt you down. You got no way to escape, baby, 
because only I'm in love with you, and only I'll own you. I don't think you have any way out of this love story, gorgeous. But baby, you need to know, I'm too in love with you and too obsessed with you and crazy about you, baby. It's forever. In another email, Camilla declared, I love you so much. Baby, you can get phone sex with me every night, and then I will give you sex in bed, okay? Renee's parents had no knowledge of the content of Camilla's email communications, but it was clear that her intentions were more than platonic. While Camilla was having romantic feelings for Renee, wasn't problematic in itself. In the context of her pattern aggressive behavior, it was a huge red flag for Teresa and Mark. Renee's poor academic performance and change in demeanor now made sense. Camilla's influence was not a healthy one. Teresa and Mark had further meetings with the school and Camilla's parents to address their concerns and end the friendship between the girls. Teresa even told Renee she'd stop paying her mobile phone bill, so Renee couldn't call or send text messages to Camilla. Camilla wasn't concerned. She gave Renee another mobile phone so the girls can continue to be in contact, unbeknownst to Teresa. Eventually, other students started targeting Camilla over their suspicion that she and Renee were in a romantic relationship. When some students prank called Camilla to tease her about it, her response was to fire off an angry email venting to Renee. Camilla vowed to seek revenge on her tormentors, saying, I'm going to kill them both. I'll snap their necks out of place. No one will ever say shit about me and my babies. As far as Teresa knew, Renee hardly seemed to mention Camilla at all anymore. But as the end of the school year loomed, Renee was adamant she wanted to leave school and get a job. She didn't offer much of an explanation to Teresa, who knew that deep down, Renee didn't have dreams of pursuing a high-powered career. Renee was family-oriented, and her dream had long been to one day get married and raise children of her own. Renee was emphatic, telling Teresa, Don't waste your money anymore, Mom. I hate school. I want out. 2009 was Renee's fresh start. The 16-year-old started a hairdressing apprenticeship at a college in the northern suburbs of Sydney and continued working part-time at the hair salon in conjunction with her studies. Renee's attempt to break away from the friendship with Camilla appeared to have been successful, and she focused on her apprenticeship. Between attending classes for most of the week and working evenings and Saturdays, Renee had time for precious little else, but she loved being busy. Wasn't long before a client of Renee's named Angus called Renee's eye, and the feeling was mutual. The pair started dating, with Angus drawn to Renee's natural optimism, who later described Renee as someone who always looked on the bright side of life with a glass-half-full approach. Angus himself was attractive and received a lot of female attention, but only had eyes for Renee. So devoted were the young couple, they wrote up a contract detailing their joint plans for the future when the time was right. By this time, Renee wasn't hearing from Camilla as much, but Renee was busy anyway. Between studying and working six days a week and spending time with Angus and her family, Renee's dance card was full, and she was happy. But halfway through the year, Camilla left school and joined Renee's hairdressing course. Camilla not only attended the same college, she also got an apprenticeship, not far from where Renee was working. This didn't bode well. Renee's worst fears were confirmed when one day, Camilla chased her down the hall at college 
maliciously, pull her hair. Again, a frightened Renee confided in her cousin, Stephanie, about what was happening, realizing that she needed to take more drastic action. She was too scared to report Camilla's harassment to the police, so decided on a different course of action. Renee arranged for her and Teresa to meet up with Camilla and her mother at a local cafe. Renee hoped that the presence of Camilla's mother would help her daughter accept Renee's boundaries. Feeling buoyed by Teresa's support, Renee bravely broke the difficult news to Camilla that she thought it was best their friendship didn't continue. As expected, Camilla didn't take it well. Teresa told Obscura that Camilla's mother tried to placate her daughter by saying, Camilla, you need to accept that Renee doesn't want to be friends with you anymore. Camilla's response was to tell her mother to, quote, shut the fuck up. An indignant Camilla wouldn't take no for an answer. She started arguing with Renee. The situation was escalating. As Camilla became more enraged, Renee felt so uncomfortable, she felt it best to leave before there was any more of a scene. Teresa gave Renee the keys to the car and instructed her to go there and wait. But a furious Camilla followed Renee as she left, grabbing her friend's arm and repeatedly pleading, You don't mean it. Teresa couldn't believe what she was seeing. Camilla wouldn't let Renee go, and Teresa had to physically intervene to pull Camilla off of her daughter, whom she escorted to the car. Camilla gave chase, pushing herself in between the car door in an attempt to get at a terrified Renee. Again, the shocked Teresa found herself fighting Camilla off in order to leave safely. The ordeal made it clear to Teresa that Camilla's feelings about the friendship and her inability to accept and respect Renee's wishes were nothing short of obsessive. Following the public confrontation, things quieted down with Camilla. Hopefully, she was moving on with her life and making new friends. By April 2010, 17-year-old Renee was working more hours at the hair salon in conjunction with finishing her hairdressing qualification. Her relationship with Angus continued to blossom, but things had once again become tense and unpredictable with Camilla, who had recommenced contact with Renee. Camilla made snide comments to Renee about Angus striking good looks, referring to him as a Ken doll. She also began following Renee on the train to work, called and text messaged her constantly, made unannounced visits to both the Marsden home and Renee's workplace. Renee confided in her mother that she noticed that Camilla now seemed to coincidentally run into her in public places. Teresa witnessed this for herself one day when she saw Camilla approach Renee at Castle Hill Library. Teresa heard Camilla threaten Renee. As long as you refuse to answer my phone calls... I will continue to follow you. One day, Angus became troubled when he noticed bruises on Renee's arms. She confided in him that she didn't want to finish her hairdressing apprenticeship because she was scared of attending college with Camilla. Renee went on to tell a concerned Angus that in one incident, Camilla had pinned her down by the hands inside her car and locked the doors. Renee had a history of scoliosis, which made being on her feet all day as a hairdresser extremely uncomfortable and contributed to back pain. But in the end, she felt so intimidated by Camilla and suffocated by her obsessiveness that she dropped out of her hairdressing course in October 2010 and went to work as a receptionist at her parents' business. Camilla continued to be in contact with Renee into 2011. And around April, 
Camilla told Renee she started dating a guy named Brayden. This was exciting news. Renee was still enjoying her relationship with Angus, but genuinely happy that Camilla had also met someone she seemed to be head over heels about. Renee was thrilled her friend had found someone special, but she was also relieved Camilla's social circle was widening and that she was spending time with someone else. Camilla gushed to Renee about Brayden's wealthy family, who were said to be prominent civil construction developers. As a result, Brayden had a privileged upbringing. After graduating from the exclusive King's School in Parramatta in Sydney's West some years previously, he now played a key role in project management and construction on high-rise projects. But despite her new love interest, Camilla still wasn't happy about the status of her friendship with Renee. Over a six-week period from late August onwards, Camilla sent Facebook messages to Renee, complaining about the amount of time that Renee was spending with Angus. Camilla sulked that she felt, quote, second best in comparison to Angus, telling Renee she felt like something on the side. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that on September 4, 2011, Camilla called Renee 54 times, who didn't pick up. The next day, Renee texted Camilla about her harassment, saying, That's fucked. I'm sorry, but that's possessive. If you can't see that, then there is something terribly wrong with you. Camilla replied, We fight every day. We argue. I told you I love you. Renee responded, There's only so much of your arguing and possessiveness I can take. I love you and always will. Later that same month, Camilla decided it was time to issue an ultimatum. She wanted Renee to choose between her best friend or her boyfriend. Renee told Camilla that just because she was in a relationship didn't mean they couldn't spend time together. But she made it clear that she couldn't make Camilla her number one priority all the time. Not long after this, Renee started receiving text messages forwarded from Camilla that had apparently been sent by a friend of Angus. The messages from the friend stated that Angus was just using Renee for sex, that he'd been sleeping with other women. Renee was deeply upset. She showed Angus the messages and confronted him, but he denied being unfaithful or that he only wanted a casual relationship. Despite Angus's protests, Renee didn't believe him and broke off the romance. A devastated Angus tried to convince Renee that the claims were nothing more than unsubstantiated gossip, but she wouldn't have it. Later that month, the Marsdens closed their family business. Renee was on the lookout for a new job. In October, she commenced a new role as a receptionist at a recruitment agency in Parramatta. Renee was now single, and even though Camilla had since broken up with Brayden, she'd moved on with someone else. When Renee told her mother that she was back in regular contact with Camilla, Teresa was shocked, but Renee was so insistent that Camilla had changed that Teresa felt she too should give Camilla the benefit of the doubt. In the meantime, Camilla told Renee that she had someone perfect in mind for her to help her move on from Angus and introduce Renee to Brayden, Camilla's ex-boyfriend, via text message. Contrary to how these things sometimes play out, there certainly didn't appear to be any concern on Camilla's part about her best friend and ex-boyfriend getting to know each other. If anything, she actively encouraged it. Even though things hadn't worked out with Brayden, Camilla wanted Renee to be happy. She was better suited to Brayden, and so be it. On November 27th, 
Braden contacted Camilla via Renee's Facebook account, as he had Renee's passwords. Braden wanted reassurance from Camilla that she was comfortable with him and Renee being in touch. Camilla was emphatic that she didn't have an issue with her best friend and ex-boyfriend becoming close. With a view to starting a relationship, Braden told Camilla, I'm really happy with how things are going on the positive side. I'm happy that you and Nay are going well. She is a beautiful girl. I love her more than anything. Camilla responded, That's good to hear, Bray. I'm happy for you and her. And yes, I agree. She is so beautiful. I love her so much. She is the best, best friend ever. Following Renee's breakup with Angus, Teresa had discussed with Renee that she felt her maturity would be better suited to dating someone slightly older. When Renee revealed that she'd been chatting with Brayden, who was 24 years old, Teresa was slightly surprised that Renee had moved on from Angus so quickly. Teresa had strong reservations when Renee told her that Brayden was Camilla's ex-boyfriend and had introduced them, but Renee reassured her mother the pair were just talking at that stage. In the meantime, Angus had maintained contact with Renee's family in his attempts to win her back. He had a good relationship with the Marsdens and just couldn't understand what had gone wrong with Renee when things seemed to be progressing. Angus knew that Renee had been in contact with Brayden, became slightly suspicious about Brayden's intentions. Just what it was, Angus couldn't precisely put his finger on it. But something didn't feel right. Towards the end of 2011, Angus contacted Brayden on Facebook in order to get to know him better. But Brayden's responses were vague and non-committal. To make things slightly more unusual, when Angus did a bit more digging, he noted that Brayden's Facebook profile were strangely similar to Camilla's. While it wasn't entirely unreasonable for Camilla and Brayden to have certain things in common, both accounts indicated that the pair had exactly the same interests. Brayden had gained access to Renee's Facebook and phone passwords and used her Facebook page to message Angus. Aside from Angus noting this was highly unusual in itself, something about Brayden's messages felt familiar. When Angus compared the messages he'd received from Brayden with the ones he'd seen Camilla send Renee, it was uncanny. The spelling and grammatical errors were nearly identical. Angus contacted Renee, suggesting that he suspected that Camilla and Brayden were the same person. Renee thought the idea was ridiculous and became upset at Angus. Why would Camilla make up a boyfriend? It was a silly thing to say. As far as Renee was concerned, it was a strategy Angus was using to rekindle their relationship. It wasn't going to work. Angus dropped it, but continued to harbor doubts about Brayden's authenticity. On December 5th, Renee posted on Facebook, A thousand angels dance around you. I am complete now that I found you. Three days later, she posted, It's funny how you can tell someone you love them 50 times a day, yet that is never good enough. The past seems to always be in the present, no matter how hard you try and block it out. On December 14th, she posted, Good luck today, my Bray. Hope all goes well. Love you. On New Year's Eve, Renee was dressed up and heading out to celebrate. Excited, she sent Brayden a photo of her wearing a red dress, but the response was abrupt. Brayden told Renee she should cover up. He felt her dress was too revealing and added that she, quote, better not be unfaithful to him. Renee was emotionally deflated, 
became more despondent as the night wore on. She received a barrage of text messages, not only from Brayden, but also Camilla, telling Renee she was upsetting Brayden and reiterating that she better not be unfaithful. Angus sent Renee a Happy New Year message, and Renee told Camilla. The next morning, Brayden texted Renee, saying that the relationship was over because she had cheated on him with Angus. Part 3. What About Us? By late January 2012, Renee and her family were on vacation aboard a cruise. On January 29th, while Renee was still away, Camilla received a message from Brayden, who was upset that Renee wouldn't reply to him while she was away. Camilla tried to contact Renee the next day, telling her that Brayden was missing her. The following day, Renee messaged Camilla, saying she would be home in a couple of days. Camilla replied that Brayden was missing Renee so badly, he was in tears. She also told Renee that she'd been on a date with a potential boyfriend. Renee was excited for her friend, couldn't wait to hear all about it when she arrived home. Something else had happened while Renee was away. When she returned to Sydney, Camilla had some distressing news about Brayden. It was said that Brayden and his best friend Richie been in a motorcycle accident. Brayden was uninjured, but tragically, Richie lost his life. Brayden was charged and convicted of manslaughter and was now in prison in Goulburn Jail in southern New South Wales. Renee was shocked to say the least, but also terribly upset for Brayden. Not only was he in a frightening, strange environment, but he had to live with guilt that he was involved in the death of his best friend. Like many inmates, Brayden had surreptitiously managed to gain access to a mobile phone in jail, which Camilla told Renee she'd arranged through Brayden's solicitor. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, Renee often updated her family at dinner every night about where things were up to with Brayden. The family always talked together about what had happened in their day while they had their evening meal. Teresa felt sorry for what Brayden was going through, isolated from his family. Sounded like he was having an incredibly difficult time. Renee told her parents that because Brayden's family were wealthy, they bribed prison staff in order to ensure Brayden can continue to use his phone. Teresa didn't question Brayden having a phone in jail, given how easy it is to get one. It made sense that the Spateris were able to buy their son favors in jail, as it seemed they had more than enough money. Renee explained to Teresa that she couldn't visit Brayden due to an agreement he made at sentencing. In return for a shorter sentence, Brayden relinquished the privilege of having any visitors during his incarceration. The smuggled phone was the only way he could have contact with the outside world. Brayden and Renee continued to chat back and forth via text messages as well as Facebook. At no stage could they have a phone conversation, as Brayden couldn't risk being heard talking on the phone much less with one in his possession. Renee would sometimes talk into her phone, sending audio messages to Brayden, but the only responses she ever received from him were text messages. Brayden and Renee shared a lot of mutual Facebook friends, and by February 2012, Brayden was communicating with Renee's friends regularly, including Camilla, and for some reason, Renee's ex-boyfriend Angus. But things came to a head when Brayden sent a nude photograph of himself to Renee's friends, which upset Renee a great deal. The couple had an argument, and Brayden agreed to close his Facebook account, but Renee told him she wanted a break. In an attempt to appease Renee, 
Brayton sent her a photograph of an expensive watch, offering to purchase it for her. Renee told Brayden she didn't want a gift. She said she needed to get her anger out, and joking that having sex with an attractive guy would be the best way to do this. Renee wanted to hurt Brayden like he'd hurt her. Upon hearing this, Brayden suggested Renee have sex with Camilla instead, to which Renee replied in all caps, No. A couple of months later, during April, Teresa liked a Facebook post made by Angus. It wasn't long before Renee called Teresa in tears. Upset because Brayden had seen the online interaction, angry that Teresa was still in contact with Angus, Brayden had sent Renee abusive text messages and then proceeded to text angry messages to Teresa, saying, You're an unfit mother for liking your daughter's ex-boyfriend's posts. By anyone's standards, Brayden was clearly overreacting and didn't like it when he couldn't control a situation. That same month, Brayden unexpectedly required surgery while in jail. He told Renee he wouldn't be able to have contact with her while he was recovering, but his lawyer would be in touch with Renee via text to reassure that Brayden was okay. Renee was relieved that she'd been receiving updates. As it happened, Camilla had gone away on vacation, so she'd been somewhat out of the loop with Brayden too. On April 9th, whilst Camilla was away on holiday, she contacted Renee to inquire how Brayden's surgery went. Renee responded that Brayden's lawyer advised her the procedure went smoothly, that she could expect to hear from him around the 26th. On May 2012, everyone in Renee's life knew about her relationship with Brayden. She spoke freely and openly about his daily struggles, adjusting to life in jail, and on several occasions, he'd been assaulted by other inmates which caused Renee a great deal of concern. To make things worse, his mother had died in Queensland from an untreatable brain tumor. The family was having difficulties repatriating her body to New South Wales, and during the process, Brayden had become estranged from both his brother and father, but a new partner whom Brayden didn't get along with. The Marsdens felt sorry for everything Brayden was going through. Felt like he definitely needed friends on the outside to support him, but his behavior towards Renee worried those closest to her. Renee had a big heart and a natural instinct to trust people. Her family didn't want to see her mistreated by someone who at times seemed to turn on a dime and become abusive. Renee's cousin Stephanie felt there was something else more nefarious going on underneath Brayden's fits of jealousy. Teresa also had strong concerns by this stage, telling Renee she felt Brayden was rude and arrogant, that it wasn't a healthy relationship. Renee told her mother she decided to end things with Brayden, but wanted to stay friends so he could have support while he was still in jail. His expected release date was in August, and after that time, hopefully his life could get back on track. In June 2012, a hopeful Renee told Stephanie that Brayden was expecting to be released soon. But by October, the relationship appeared to be over. Renee had started dating a work colleague named Ian. The couple enjoyed spending time together, Renee stayed at Ian's place a couple times a week, and they spent their time together going out on weekends. Renee was still in touch with Brayden, but not as often as she had been. She was open with Ian about her former relationship. She told him that Brayden was one of three children. His mother had passed away, and his father had lived in Mosman. On the north shore of Sydney, Renee elaborated that she'd met Brayden's family 
and that before he went to jail, Braden had taken over his father's construction business. Ian suspected that some of what Renee was saying was highly unlikely, but not because she was lying. Renee was entirely sincere in recounting all the ins and outs of Braden's life. While the new relationship was a relief for Renee's family, Braden was still keeping tabs on Renee. Despite still being incarcerated, Braden was aware that Renee was now in a relationship with Ian, and he wasn't happy about it. When Renee posted a photo of herself on Facebook, wearing a formal dress to a work function, Braden saw part of Ian in the photo. Braden then sent a barrage of abusive text messages to Renee, accusing her of being unfaithful to him. He also sent similarly threatening messages to Ian, warning him, quote, Stay the fuck away from Renee. As if this wasn't unpleasant enough, Renee was becoming more and more uncomfortable about constant harassment she was again receiving from Camilla. One night, in late October, while Renee, Camilla, and a group of their friends were all out at the casino in the city, Camilla pushed Renee and hit her. Distressed Renee called Ian to come pick her up. This was the last straw for Renee, who changed her phone number so Camilla could no longer contact her. Teresa later reported that in November, Renee said that Camilla had gone psycho at the Marsden home. Camilla had been overwrought at the thought that Renee would spend all her time with Brayden when he was released from prison. Teresa managed to calm Camilla down. Renee reassured her friend that she would still be there for her when Brayden was released. During this time, Camilla asked Teresa what she thought of Brayden. Ever the protective mother, Teresa told Camilla that if Brayden was a man, he'd leave Renee alone till he was released from jail and allow Renee to live her life without waiting for him. Brayden soon after texted Renee, telling her they should leave it until he got out. Two days later, Teresa wanted to speak with Brayden as Renee was upset. Brayden messaged Teresa, quote, She's upset because everyone keeps telling her the obvious, that I'm in jail and it will never work. She is everything to me. The last thing I want is to hold her down. She chose to go through this with me after everything that happened. She became my best friend, and I have fallen for her. She tells me she feels the same. Teresa, I'm a good guy. I would never disrespect her, cheat or lie to her. She's everything to me. I can make her more than happy. Brayden then went on to criticize Renee's ex-boyfriend Angus, reiterating to Teresa that he and Renee would see how things went when he was released from prison. 2013 started on a positive note for Renee when she and Ian became engaged in January. The following month, Renee started a new job as a receptionist for a courier company. Even though Renee had never felt particularly ambitious in terms of specific career path, she found herself drawn to studying forensic science. But as she hadn't finished high school, further study was required in order for Renee to enroll in university. In March 2013, she enrolled at a technical college in Granville, studying a diploma of laboratory technology and pathology testing. By this time, Renee's LinkedIn profile read, I am ambitious, highly organized, determined and devoted to my work, will enter my job with excitement and enthusiasm. I consider myself to be very efficient and trustworthy, with excellent communication skills. I am passionate, calm under pressure, and a fast learner. The positive attitude towards achieving goals and high-level customer service. But cracks were showing in the engagement to Ian. 
Throughout this time, Renee and Brayden had maintained contact by text message, which eventually resulted in Ian giving Renee an ultimatum in March. Renee had to choose between her fiancé or Brayden. Regrettably for Ian, Renee chose Brayden. Renee and Ian decided to maintain contact as friends, but Renee was open with her colleagues about her relationship with Brayden. She was determined to make it work, but it wasn't long before Brayden showed that he hadn't changed his behavior. Not long after reuniting, the couple began arguing, which was only placated by Renee making apologetic overtures. A pattern emerged, whereby a period of happiness would fall where the couple expressed their devotion to each other, till Brayden typically became argumentative again. The cycle continued. Even though he was in jail, Brayden emotionally manipulated Renee by exercising a significant degree of control over where she went and with whom. Bitter heated confrontations, all via text message, followed by Renee acquiescing and having to be the bigger person. And still, Renee was having difficulties with Camilla. She just couldn't seem to shake her old high school friend. In mid-March, the friends went out one evening to Parramatta Hotel for dinner, where Ian also happened to be dining. Ian and Renee didn't speak during the evening, but after Renee and Camilla finished their dinner, Renee texted Ian, asking if he wanted to catch up for a quick drink nearby. He agreed, but it wasn't long after the girls turned up before Camilla became upset about the unexpected interruption to their night. Camilla and Renee left abruptly, but things were about to get worse. Renee later told Ian that in the car on the way home, Camilla hit Renee on the back of the head and pulled her hair. Renee also sent a message to Brayden, telling him that Camilla's violent behavior was the last straw. I think now Camilla and I are done for good. We were walking, and she started abusing me in the car, saying, I ruined everything, the rest of the shit. She hit me in the nose and was screaming the whole way home. I don't feel safe around her. I hate going out with her, and I can't do it anymore. I said the last time she hits me again, I'm done. All she kept saying was, You're dead. I'm going to fucking kill you. I can't put up with the violence anymore. Brayden instructed Renee not to see Camilla anymore, but as Camilla's 21st birthday approached, Brayden felt the right thing for Renee to do would be to wish Camilla a happy birthday, but not attend any celebrations, as he didn't trust Camilla to not hurt Renee. Brayden asked Renee whether Ian had contacted her in the meantime, telling her he didn't want them having contact, because he felt Ian was the cause of the end of Renee's friendship with Camilla. Renee said she hadn't heard back from Ian, but pointed out that her friendship with Camilla had been volatile long before Ian was on the scene. Brayden responded that he hated Ian, then made a strange suggestion. He insisted that Renee not tell Teresa about Camilla assaulting Renee in the car, and contradicted his previous advice about Renee seeing Camilla. Brayden suggested that Renee take Camilla out for dinner for her birthday, so she agreed to attend the party. Renee wrote Camilla a letter for the occasion, thanking her friend for accepting Renee's relationship with Brayden, hoping that Camilla, too, would find herself one day as happy as Renee. There are two things that I am absolutely grateful for, and would always be thankful and grateful for the rest of my life. That is allowing me and Brayden to start a relationship together. 
You don't understand, babe, how much it truly means to me. If it wasn't because of you, I wouldn't have met the one person that means more than the world itself to me. And secondly, for always being there no matter what happens, I only want the best for you, and I hope one day you find your everything, and you're someone that will mean more than life itself, and more than anyone or anything in the world. I'd kill anyone that would hurt you. Learn from your mistakes, babe, especially the last few months, but you have pushed, showing how strong you truly are, and I admire you for that. I'll do anything I can to make sure I can give you what I found and make sure that person is your all. It's my life mission to see you happy. My life won't fully be complete till I see the day you have everything you have ever dreamt of. Later that month, Renee and Brayden's relationship became more intimate. The pair started engaging in tech sex, and Renee sent Brayden more personal videos and photographs. But Renee often became upset when her requests for Brayden to reciprocate were ignored. The following months continued to be turbulent for the young couple. Due to Brayden's intense jealousy for Renee, spending her time with other people. During their conversations, Renee and Brayden discussed getting married after her 21st birthday in October. Following Brayden's release, Renee set to work researching wedding vendors, poring over wedding magazines, looking at dresses, sending photos of outfits to Brayden, and booked a photographer for late November. Renee also set about planning their honeymoon writing to the Greek consulate general to inquire whether a criminal conviction would prevent someone obtaining a tourist visa. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that in a letter to Brayden in 2013, Renee wrote, I have never kissed you or held you in my arms. Every day I feel like I have. You make me the happiest girl in the world. I love you so much. One day, I will make you my husband. I love you to death. Continue to love you until the end. Seems like Renee's dream of marrying the love of her life and starting a family would be realized. There was more positive news. Camilla had started dating a guy named Michael. Renee's birthday wish for her friend had come true, and she couldn't be happier. To Renee, Camilla had finally found happiness of her own with someone, which meant she was less demanding of Renee's time. On this basis, Renee maintained the friendship, but the abusive dynamic continued. Tension still flared between Renee and Brayden over Camilla, who by April had taken to ignoring Renee. Brayden told an emotionally exhausted Renee he felt she should fight to save the friendship, which seemed to get back on track after Camilla apologized to Renee for her behavior. During this time, Brayden continued to harangue Renee about her ruminating on her previous relationships, even accusing her of cheating on him with Ian. Based on Renee's subsequent correspondence with Brayden, the accusation appeared to have some substance. Nevertheless, Renee was wounded by Brayden's words. She reiterated how much emotional support she'd provided, how much she loved him. I fight for you, Brayden. Every situation we've been through, I've been there. Not once have I complained. I truly thought you were everything, and I could never let you go. I saw my future with you. I was going to do whatever it took to give it to you. I hate myself for what I did to you. Renee asked Brayden if she can have a personal memento of his as a keepsake to feel closer to him. When Brayden went to jail, all his personal belongings had been put into storage, but only his lawyer had access to the key. Heated discussions ensued about why Brayden 
couldn't arrange for Renee to have access to the storage facility. As he claimed it was a complicated process, Renee was irate at Braden's refusal to compromise. By this stage, she was paying for his prepaid phone credit so they could stay in touch, and things seemed so one-sided at times. With Renee making most of the effort, when Renee kept asking about having access to Braden's storage facility to have just one memento, he called her a materialistic bitch. Days later, things seemed to have settled and were back to normal. Renee told Braden she wanted them to go to New York for her 21st birthday. As he had a conviction, all he needed to do was make a special application and be interviewed. Braden told Renee he'd try his best, that she should go without him. Days later, after another argument between Renee and Camilla, Braden complained that his phone was acting up. Renee offered him her Blackberry on a temporary basis, telling him she'd arranged to have his phone repaired. She also said she'd organize him a new SIM card so it wouldn't be in Camilla's name. As it was currently, Renee suggested that perhaps she could get it to him via his lawyer. Braden responded that he didn't know where his lawyer's office was. Renee thought this was strange. How could Braden have met with his lawyer before he went to jail and not know where his office was? When Renee asked him about it, Braden responded, Who the fuck are you to question what my meetings are about? And fucking who with? When Renee threatened to end the relationship, Braden immediately changed his tune, saying, I love you, Renee. You changed my life from day one. I know there have been hard times, fuck times, and mean times. I adore you, and you're so beautiful in every way. I miss you. I love you so much, Renee. Without fail, every day. Renee told Braden things wouldn't continue unless he made serious changes. The following days, Camilla suggested that Renee try to exercise more patience with Brayden. Renee didn't have faith in him and continued to push certain issues. There was the possibility she could lose him. In late April, Renee was feeling despondent, texting Brayden, I go through hell every day with you. True to her nature, Renee wanted to move things forward and do what she could to advocate for Brayden as his main source of support on the outside. She told him she wanted to speak with his lawyer to discuss the delay in Brayden being given a release date. Once again, Brayden told Renee to drop the issue, but Renee wanted to know the full truth, telling Brayden until he provided her with his lawyer's contact details, she wouldn't speak with him. Renee, there's some things that just don't make sense to me, and I'm finding it hard to believe. Brayden, what do you mean? Renee, my heart's breaking over and over, trying to understand why you don't want me knowing things. Brayden, I've told you everything. Renee, you change your story. Brayden, I love you, Renee. I've told you everything. Renee, you told me everything, but it doesn't make sense. Brayden, please just stop questioning me and have some faith. Renee, I'm trying to have faith, but it's hard. A few weeks ago, we were so excited to get married. Now you're just changing it. I'm broken, Brayden. Despite Brayden claiming that Richie's family hated him, Renee encouraged Brayden to try to get to a point where he didn't feel sad about talking about Richie and instead reflect on the good times they shared together. Renee promised to do everything she could to help Brayden deal with his grief.
On May 1st, Renee texted Brayden, You ever wonder sometimes how strange it is, right? That we never met. We have this inseparable love for each other. Several days later, Renee suggested to Brayden that as he was facing his first Mother's Day without his mother, she'd go and put some flowers at the gravesite from them both. Brayden thanked Renee for the heartfelt gesture, but told her his mother didn't have a grave. Renee thought this was strange, but Brayden said he didn't know why this was the case, saying he didn't want to talk about his family. On May 19th, Renee texted Camilla, Oh my God, my lip is split in two places because of you suggesting that Camilla was either intentionally or accidentally responsible for the injury. Camilla didn't apologize, but asked later that day how Renee's lip was and how her day was going. Renee's response suggested that all seemed to be forgiven when she said, Good, thanks. How are you? Later that same month, Renee and Camilla had a disagreement over Renee wanting to borrow some money. The pair argued, culminating Camilla Threatening to send Renee's parents a risque photo Camilla had of Renee. Once again, things seemed to resolve themselves. By now, the soccer season had started. Camilla played on a local team with Renee's mother, Teresa, and Renee usually attended the matches as a show of moral support, which Camilla in particular appreciated. Braden's controlling and possessive behavior continued. He told Renee he didn't want her having male friends socializing with work colleagues or going to the gym. The pattern was predictable. Brayden would always accuse Renee of lying about her movements and who she was with and then claim she was being unfaithful. Renee was always the one appeasing Brayden and de-escalating his jealous tirades. By June, Renee and Camilla hadn't been in contact with each other as much. They saw each other socially. It was usually in the company of mutual friends Camilla had a month-long overseas holiday planned for July, and text messages from around that time indicate that Renee planned to go watch Camilla play soccer, also repaying her some of the money which Renee had borrowed. Unfortunately, one text exchange deteriorated into Camilla lashing out. How would you feel if I mentioned Brayden and everything? Renee pointed out the obvious, responding, Camilla, you always do. The ongoing friction and high-maintenance nature of the friendship with Camilla was the last thing Renee needed. Brayden had already told her that he wouldn't have access to his phone for four weeks in July, so he'd essentially be uncontactable. Tension between the couple again escalated. Renee told Brayden that she didn't want to marry him anymore, that there were specific changes he needed to make if he wanted to save the relationship. Instead of taking this on board, Brayden texted back that Renee also needed to make changes, like not socializing with male friends. In mid-June, Renee had a mutual friend of Camilla's named Melanie attend Camilla's soccer game. Following the match, Camilla was disproportionately upset. She'd scored a goal, but Renee and Melanie missed the big moment from the sidelines as they were busy chatting. Camilla refused to drive the girls home and instead sent Renee abusive text messages referencing Melanie, saying, Get fucked, you cunt. I'm not even talking to her. You're both dogs. It's simple. Yous can get fucked. You're both cunts. Ten minutes later, Brayden texted Renee to see how the match went. Renee vented to her boyfriend about Camilla's childish 
immature behavior. I'm over it. I'm not coming anymore. I don't want a friend like that. She wants to treat me like a dog. She can get fucked. I want nothing to do with her. I'm there every game, sitting on the sideline, watching her in one game. I get abused, so I don't want anything to do with her. Brayden responded unsympathetically. You're fucked, Renee. I fucking told you to let the friendship go. You ignored it and look, I can see why she is angry. Renee, you always blame everyone else. Several hours later, Brayden and Renee had a further text exchange. Both were apologetic and professed their love for each other. Brayden told Renee she often misinterpreted things. She countered that Brayden didn't trust her. The exchange concluded with both vowing to never hurt each other. The next day, Brayden continued the conversation, telling Renee he was sick of her being upset by Camilla, and essentially issuing her an ultimatum. He told Renee the friendship wasn't healthy, that she needed to break away from Camilla. On June 19th, Renee acquired a new phone, but continued to use her old handset as an iPod. Even though Brayden was uncontactable during July, Renee missed him greatly and even messaged him several times a day. Brayden's next court day was scheduled that month and Renee was hopeful that he'd be released. Renee had also once again been giving serious consideration to ending her friendship with Camilla once and for all. Camilla was going to the USA for a month, so it was the perfect time for Renee to make the break. After messaging Camilla telling her the friendship was finished, Renee wrote to Brayden, telling him how much better she felt having ended the tumultuous and toxic friendship. I can tell you, I have finally let Camilla go for good, and I feel so much better about it now. Renee also broke the news to her mother, Teresa, that the friendship was over. Teresa was relieved. She knew that Camilla's behavior was unusual to say the least. Following the meeting at the cafe four years earlier where Renee unsuccessfully tried to end the friendship, and things became physical. Over the years, Renee had disclosed details of Camilla's abuse to her cousin Stephanie, former boyfriends, Angus and Ian, as well as Brayden. But it was only now that Teresa learned just how trapped Renee had felt, what she'd been subjected to. Renee told Teresa about the abuse, violence, harassment, manipulation, and ongoing intense fear that Renee had been experiencing. This included several incidents where Renee was driving, and Camilla reached over from the passenger seat, grabbing the steering wheel. Teresa was shocked. She knew Camilla had issues, but didn't suspect it was this bad. Camilla returned home from her birthday on July 29th, but neither she nor Renee contacted each other. Renee's family hoped that soon, the friendship with Camilla would become just a memory of time and place. Renee was moving on with her life, making plans for the future. Listener, here's where part one of Renee's story ends for today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss part two, where you'll hear what happened next about how Renee's family fight for justice unfolded. We were deeply honored to speak at length with Teresa and Mark Marsden in the process of concluding our research and are incredibly grateful to them for sharing their time with us as well as their memories of Renee. If anything in today's story has raised any issues for you, including concerns about intimate partner or family violence, or if someone you know needs help, please see our show notes for the episode on your app 
or on our website for a list of contact numbers. You can call for confidential support. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat, next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Last time on Obscura, you heard part one of the story of Renee Marsden. 20-year-old Renee was a spirited, fun-loving, and family-oriented young woman. She worked casually as a receptionist at a courier company in Sydney, Australia, to help support putting herself through a pathology qualification. Renee had left high school at the end of 2008 to pursue a hairdressing apprenticeship, but since then had reassessed her goals was now focused on studying forensic science at university. Her story picks back up in mid-2013. Renee was living at home with her family, including three younger siblings. In Sydney's northwestern suburbs, she was in discussions with her close cousin Stephanie about moving out of home so they could rent an apartment together. But things hadn't always been easy. For several years, Renee made several unsuccessful attempts to end a friendship with 21-year-old Camilla Zayden, whom Renee had first met at high school four years earlier. Camilla was manipulative, jealous, and at times verbally and physically abusive to Renee. She deeply resented Renee having intimate relationships or even spending time with other people. Camilla even took to following Renee outside the home in public places. But no matter how hard Renee tried to distance herself, she and Camilla would end up talking again. Renee was a kind, trusting, and forgiving person who wanted to give her close friend the benefit of the doubt. Renee's mother, Teresa, and stepfather, Mark, had always been concerned about Camilla's influence and problematic behavior. Thankfully, as much as Camilla would have liked, she didn't take up all of Renee's time. Renee had other priorities in life, like boyfriend Brayden, whom Renee had met via text message. Thanks to an introduction by Camilla, by mid-2013, Brayden had been in prison for around 18 months. He had been convicted of manslaughter, involving the accidental death of his best friend in a motorbike accident in early 2012. The relationship was rocky at times. New to certain conditions around Brayden's imprisonment, the only way he and Renee could communicate was by text message. It was easy enough to get mobile phones into prisons. And Camilla had been kind enough to arrange this for Brayden who had been communicating with Renee before the accident. But by July 2013, Renee decided it was time to end her friendship with Camilla for good. After Camilla once again overreacted about not being the center of Renee's world, Renee felt empowered by the decision, was now focusing her energy on organizing her wedding to Brayden, after he was due to be released later that year. Part 4. Trouble On August 4th, Teresa asked Renee whether she planned to attend the upcoming soccer game that weekend, in which Teresa and Camilla would both be playing. Renee replied that unless the team made it to the grand final, 
she wouldn't be attending any more games because she wanted to avoid Camilla. The next day, August 5th, Renee left home at around 7 a.m. and went to work at her job at the courier company. She kept her phone nearby as she was hoping to hear from Brayden about the outcome of his latest court appearance and a possible release date. Renee texted Brayden at 7.34 a.m. Around 10.30 a.m., Renee told one of her colleagues named Joseph that she hadn't heard from Brayden in just over a month. She was looking forward to calling Goldburn Jail to speak with him. Renee and Joseph then made arrangements to meet for lunch later that day at 1 p.m. At 11.36 a.m., Camilla texted Renee, who replied at 11.37 a.m. But the content of these messages is not known. At 11.53 a.m., Renee texted Brayden, the pair continuing to exchange messages until 12.03 p.m. At 12.05 p.m., Renee emailed her colleague, Joseph, saying she was upset because she'd made contact with Brayden and he was being blunt in his responses. Between 12.28 and 13.31 p.m., Renee and Brayden continued to text each other. Around 1 p.m., Joseph and Renee met as arranged and walked to a local cafe for lunch. While they were en route, Renee received a text message from Brayden. Joseph saw that Renee immediately became upset and started crying. She showed him Brayden's message, which said, I think I need a break, and so do you. Renee was devastated. As the minutes passed, her level of distress worsened. Renee continued to text Brayden between 1.18 and 1.31 p.m., but he didn't respond. By this time, Renee and Joseph had arrived at the cafe, but Renee was still crying. So upset, she had to be comforted by the cafe staff. Renee told Joseph through her tears she wanted to go home. The pair returned to the office. Renee told Joseph she was going to call Goldburn Jail herself to speak to Brayden. Renee left work in her car and headed home. Renee then texted Brayden who replied, but again, it's not known what was said. Teresa could tell her eldest daughter was upset when she arrived home early and asked what had happened. Renee replied nothing was wrong, went to her room to change. In the next five minutes, Renee sent up to nine text messages to Brayden, but he didn't reply. Said he messaged Teresa, the following exchange occurring between 2.59 and 3.27 p.m. Brayden, sort your daughter out, threatening to kill herself. Teresa, please explain to me why a young woman would want to kill herself. Brayden, ask her yourself. Teresa, have you ever thought that maybe you are the problem? Brayden, I'm the problem, am I? Have you ever thought you neglected her when she clearly needs help? Teresa, if there really is a God out there, you will answer my prayers. Time will tell. Brayden, he only answers people that are genuine. Teresa, clearly that's why you are there and I am here. Brayden, yeah, exactly. That's why he hasn't answered your prayers. I know I'm not a good person, but I must be something if your daughter loves me. Brayden then texted Renee, and she responded, but he didn't reply. Teresa wanted to get to the bottom of things. She went to Renee's room and asked her if what Brayden had said was true. Renee responded, Don't be stupid. I would never do that. When Teresa showed Renee Brayden's text message, Renee reassured her, Mom, you don't have to worry about him anymore. I finally found out what he is all about. Teresa asked Renee what she meant. Renee replied, Don't worry, Mom. 
It's all over. After this conversation, Braden sent further texts to Teresa, last telling her that Renee loved him. Just after 3.30 p.m., Teresa went out to collect her younger children from the bus stop. When she returned home, Renee was in a different outfit, reapplying her makeup. She told her mother that she was heading out for the evening to have dinner with friends in the eastern suburbs. Teresa took her two sons to swimming lessons and asked Renee to drive her seven-year-old sister to their grandmother's granny flat at the rear of the Marsden's rural property. Renee agreed, told Teresa she wouldn't be home too late. At 4.40 p.m., Renee sent Brayden another text, but he didn't reply. Renee dropped her younger sister at their grandmother's as agreed and headed off to dinner across the other side of the city. While Teresa was at the swimming pool, she received a text message from Renee at 5.49 p.m. I love you so much. Sorry for everything and the pain I will now cause you. But I'll be okay. I'll still be here. And be around when you need to talk to me. Just call my name and I'll be there. You're the most amazing person and mother ever. My very best friend. I wasn't happy and I need you to understand that it's okay. Don't let this ruin everyone else you need to take care of, okay? I need you to be strong for me. I love you, Mama. I always will. And I'll be waiting when you come. Teresa tried to call Renee, who didn't answer. Teresa texted back, Please answer your phone. Listener, as you heard last week at the start of our story, Teresa wasn't too concerned initially by Renee's message. In the context of their discussion earlier that afternoon, Teresa had been openly supportive of Renee. Renee knew she could tell her mom anything. Teresa returned home from the pool with her sons and went to a friend's house where she showed her friend the message from Renee. Teresa's friend told her to contact the police who visited the Marsden's home around 7.50 p.m. After they left, Teresa texted Camilla at 8.18 p.m. asking whether she'd heard from Renee and if everything was all right, Camilla texted back. She messaged me a while ago. Why, is everything okay? Camilla tried calling Renee, but her phone was switched off. Camilla texted Teresa, offering to come over to help go and look for Renee. Camilla and her mother picked up Teresa. The trio drove around to places Camilla thought Renee could be. This included a house in Glenhaven, where Camilla said Brayden's sister lived. The women hoped that Renee's car may have been there, but it wasn't. Police inquiries initially focused on locating Renee. She hadn't turned up to the planned dinner with her friends from work. After contacting Renee's mobile phone service provider, police learned that Renee's phone had been switched off at 5.58 p.m. It had been in the vicinity of Old South Head Road, in the eastern Sydney suburb of Vaucluse, about a five-minute drive from the Gap. Eastern Suburbs Police were instructed to search the area surrounding the Gap to see if they could locate Renee or her car. Around 8.45 p.m. that night, police found Renee's red Mazda 2 parked on Military Road in Watson's Bay, around 150 meters from the steps at the Gap. Inside the locked car, police found a Valentine's Day card in Renee's wallet, which contained a collage of photos of Brayden and Renee, which Braden had sent her the year before. With a type declaration, I love you, baby. Using her finger, 
Renee had written in the condensation on the side of the car's window. Renee loves Brayden. Renee had always kept her clothes and other personal belongings in her car, but the vehicle was now empty aside from an iPhone. This was Renee's previous phone, which she now used as an iPod. The New South Wales Police Rescue Unit coordinated a land and air search, but it was as if Renee had vanished into thin air. Arrangements were made to tow her car to a police holding yard. The following morning, Teresa and Mark headed out to the Gap, where police had resumed their search for Renee. An aerial search failed to yield any leads, but Teresa found Renee's black ballet flats she'd been wearing when she left the house. They were neatly placed near a path that led from Military Road to the cliff's edge. Police divers searched the ocean floor near the foreshore, but couldn't locate any sign of Renee. Another dive and sea surface search covered a more expansive area, but still nothing. Police told Teresa and Mark that if Renee had taken her own life by jumping off the gap, her body would likely surface within three days. Teresa's head was spinning. The suggestion that Renee would take her own life didn't make sense. As a mother, Teresa didn't feel she had any reason to be concerned about Renee's mental health, given their exceptionally close relationship. Despite what the police seemed to conclude early in the investigation, Teresa refused to believe that Renee had taken her own life. She didn't feel emotionally separated from her daughter. Only two weeks previously, they had both had a ball attending a pink concert. She knew Renee had been upset about Brayden, had no reason to believe that Renee's last text message was a suicide note. Teresa's main concern was that she knew how frightened Renee was of Camilla. Given that Renee's body hadn't been found, Teresa felt her daughter could still be alive, was simply so scared of Camilla that she felt she had no other option but to run away and escape the abuse. Something in Teresa's gut told her Camilla knew more than she was leading everyone to believe. Meanwhile, that same morning Camilla texted her boyfriend Michael. My best friend committed suicide last night. She jumped off the gap. I'm not going to work. Thirteen minutes later, Camilla texted Teresa saying, Renee has always been like this. It's not Brayden's fault. Can't blame one person. Apparently, they didn't fight. She always said she hated being at home before she met Brayden. And after, she always said she would do this for many different reasons. He's hurting as well, I'm sure. Just like us all. There's never one person to blame. I can't handle this because I can't live without Renee. We fight. We have always had a love and hate relationship. We always came out being friends. I don't want to know the outcome because I can't cope at all. Teresa asked Camilla whether Renee ever complained to her about anything. Camilla replied, About home, yes. Renee promised me she would never do anything like this. And yes, she always did complain about home. She wanted to move out. She always said that Mark would abuse the kids or you, and she couldn't handle it. Truth is, it was never about one person. Didn't have anything to do with Brayden. I think Renee was just upset, to be honest. She did similar to this at school. She always felt like everyone was against her. She pulled herself away from people. Brayden begged her to go out all the time. 
She always had an excuse. He just stopped liking me because she would complain to him about me, like she did about everything else. And he was upset for her. Teresa knew she had to speak to Brayden to get some solid answers. Two days after Renee went missing, with Teresa, Mark, and Camilla and Stephanie sitting around the kitchen table, Teresa texted Brayden, Where are you? I want to speak to you. I want answers now. A few hours later, she messaged him again. Answer me, please. You can't do this. But Brayden didn't reply. Camilla reiterated that Renee's sudden disappearance wasn't Brayden's fault, that he too was upset. Mark asked Camilla how she knew this. She replied that when Renee went missing, Brayden had called Camilla from a private number. She maintained that Brayden didn't want to speak to anyone because everyone was blaming him for Renee not coming home or making contact. In the days immediately following Renee's disappearance, Camilla continued to spend as much time at the Marston's home as she could. It's what any concerned friend would do. During lengthy conversations with Teresa, Camilla urged her not to blame Brayden, but other things that Camilla said didn't feel right to Teresa. Camilla claimed that Renee was verbally and physically abusive in their friendship, which strangely enough were Renee's exact complaints about Camilla. Teresa didn't believe Camilla, but there were still so many unanswered questions about where Renee had gone and why. Teresa knew that if anyone had information that could lead them to the truth, it would be Camilla. So Teresa played along and listened empathetically. Teresa observed that when she told Camilla that she'd given police Brayden's phone number, Camilla seemed shocked and panicky. Police obtained CCTV footage from the vicinity of the Gap on the night Renee disappeared. The footage first captured Renee at the Gap at 5.22 p.m. Renee could be seen walking around for a while, till she sat down on a brick wall. At 5.51 p.m., she climbed over the safety fence and again sat down, looking over the cliff edge. A few minutes later, at 5.54 p.m., Renee was captured throwing her phone over the cliff towards the direction of the ocean. At 5.56 p.m., she could be seen climbing down the cliff face, where she then disappeared out of sight of the camera. Teresa told Obscura that police told her they scrutinized the next 10 hours of available footage and fast forward. But Renee didn't return during that time. Teresa also claimed that the police told her they couldn't provide any further footage to the family, as there was none available after that 10-hour period. This only raised more questions for Teresa. How could Renee be there one minute and then gone the next? Renee wasn't seen jumping or falling off the cliff. When it came to investigating Renee's phone records to help locate her, Teresa told Obscura that police seemed disinterested in pursuing this angle. But Teresa was shocked and angered when investigators told her they were unable to crack the phone found in Renee's car. Teresa set about making her own inquiries to unlock the phone to access any possible clues. Unfortunately, when an attempt was made to download the text messages from the phone, the information became corrupted. Around three weeks after Renee's disappearance, police advised Teresa to approach Renee's phone provider herself, see if any deleted text messages could be retrieved from her current phone. 
Much to Teresa's frustration and disappointment, the phone provider told her that the only data recoverable by that stage were date and timestamps documenting the amount of messages sent, received, and deleted from Renee's new phone between June 19th and August 5th. Back in 2013, data held by phone service providers was unable to be accessed after seven days. Thereafter, being unrecoverable, a dejected Teresa couldn't help but feel that if investigators had requested Renee's phone records from the outset, the family would have had the answers they so desperately needed. Part 5. Who Knew? Teresa and Mark set to work trawling Renee's phone records that they were able to obtain, potting out her phone usage to piece together the gaps in information. Hopefully, this would convince police there was more to the story behind Renee's disappearance. The records revealed that from March to June 2013 alone, Renee and Braden exchanged 11,400 text messages on her old phone, as well as numerous Facebook messages, but no content of any text from Braden to Renee could be recovered between July 1st and August 5th. On the day Renee disappeared, she and Braden exchanged 91 text messages, with Renee sending 64 of those. She also received two messages from Camilla, one at 11.36 a.m. and one at 8.25 p.m. At 2.44 p.m., Renee had made a phone call to Goldburn Prison, which lasted 90 seconds. This was the phone call she told Joseph she was going to make after she received Braden's message, ending the relationship. Teresa and Mark traced Renee's movements from the time she left the family home earlier that afternoon, concluding that Renee arrived at Watson's Bay around 5.20 p.m. At 5.22 p.m., she sent the first of up to six text messages to Braden. He replied at 5.46 p.m. Further three texts from Renee to Braden failed to elicit a response. Renee waited several more minutes and sent three more texts. One was to Braden, one to Camilla, and the last was to Teresa. After Renee climbed over the fence at 5.51 p.m., Braden replied and she responded. The next message from Braden was sent at 5.55 p.m., by which time Renee had thrown her phone away. As Teresa and Mark poured over Renee's phone records, the pieces were gradually coming together. They both knew by now how much Camilla scared Renee. But then the sickening realization dawned which explained why Brayden hadn't been in contact since Renee had disappeared. It wasn't because he had no desire for no further contact following the end of the relationship. It was because beyond the text messages, Brayden as he was known to Renee and the Marsdens, didn't exist. And Teresa and Mark, it was suddenly clear as day. Behind the screen, Brayden's real identity was no longer a mystery. It was, in fact, Camilla. Renee had not only been abused by her supposed best friend, but also been catfished by her for almost two years. Catfishing is a process whereby an individual sets out to target someone via fake social media accounts in an attempt to deceive them, most often through establishing a fraudulent romantic relationship, which largely takes place entirely online. Catfishing often involves manipulating the unsuspecting victim 
and departing with a significant amount of money using various ruses. But it is also used as a means of manipulation, coercion, and control. Teresa told Obscura how she felt upon making this horrifying discovery. Reading some of the text message now that Camilla sent to Renee really kills me. Just puts the knife in. Because I think, how can someone be so awful as a person? Well, control your best friend right as your friend, and then control her as a boyfriend. She's controlled her both ways. So she's copped it mentally. She's copped the mental abuse from both of them, and the physical abuse from Camilla. Armed with their painstaking analysis of Renee's phone records, and the additional discovery that Camilla had at some stage placed a tracking device on Renee's phone, Teresa and Mark again approached police. They were confident that their theory that Camilla had intentionally catfished Renee over an extended period was supported by what they'd uncovered. Surely, they hoped, Camilla could be found legally responsible in some way for having contributed to Renee's disappearance, could be charged with something. In contrast to their previous interactions with police, Teresa and Mark were relieved to talk with leading senior constable, Georgia Robinson. The officer patiently listened to their story, went through the phone records they provided. As Teresa told Obscura, if it wasn't for her helping us in the beginning, we wouldn't be speaking about it now. The lead investigator undertook inquiries with Goldburn Jail, the Department of Corrective Services, and the King's School regarding Braden's identity, but none of these institutions had any record of Braden nor was any information available about what Renee had been told during her phone call to Goldburn Jail. There was no evidence whether she learned more about Brayden's identity, because as far as Renee was concerned, Brayden was real. Renee certainly wouldn't have been able to speak with Brayden at the time, even if he did exist. If she'd inquired whether Brayden was an inmate at Goldburn Jail, she may have been told there was no one there by that name. It was now clear to police, too, that Braden was a complete fabrication. Investigators decided it was time to speak with Camilla and obtain a statement. Camilla was interviewed by police on August 25th. She was asked to provide information about the history of her friendship with Renee, including text and verbal conversations between the pair prior to Renee's disappearance. Camilla was also asked to provide details of her knowledge of Braden. But when Camilla supplied her two-page statement, there was a noticeable lack of information about Braden and his communications with Renee. Camilla explained this by saying that Renee never discussed her romantic relationships, adding that Teresa and Mark disapproved of the women's friendship. Camilla denied ever having an intimate relationship with Renee. Camilla told police that Braden was a real person, provided a physical description. She said that she first met Brayden at the Brewery Nightclub in Rouse Hill, in Sydney's Northwest, but couldn't remember the date. Camilla told police that she only had one mobile phone. She didn't know Brayden's phone number because it was stored on a broken phone of hers that was being repaired. Camilla stated on the morning of August 5th, Renee called her to say Brayden once again and no credit on his phone. Camilla stated she replied, Hey, whatever and hung up. Camilla told Senior Constable Robinson that the last thing she heard from Renee 
was a text message at 5.47 p.m. saying, I'm sorry for everything. You'll always be my best friend. I hope one day you can forgive me. I love you. Camilla claimed that she went to call Renee when she received the text message. Camilla told Senior Constable Robinson that the next text she received was later that night from Teresa, asking if she'd heard from Renee. Senior Constable Robinson asked Camilla, I want you to be honest with me. The telephone call logs that I have here in front of me suggest to me that you are Brayden. Are you? Camilla replied, No, I know that a lot of people think I am. Everyone is against me. I wish I was where Renee is now, wherever she is. I just want to go have the peace she is feeling now. We could be together. He thinks she is really gone. The next day after her interview, Camilla's health took a turn for the worse. She was admitted to a hospital based on her family's concern that she was at risk of self-harm. The clinical notes from Camilla's hospital admission that she said she received Renee's final message, but didn't interpret this as Renee saying goodbye. Camilla was discharged four days later on August 30th. No further concerns about her mental health were noted. On September 10th, the detective in charge of the investigation into Renee's disappearance submitted a report to the New South Wales State Coroner. It stated that police inquiries indicated that Renee was a missing person, suspected to be deceased. In anticipation of an inquest into the reason behind Renee's disappearance, police were instructed to prepare a brief of evidence for the coroner. Almost two weeks later, on September 23rd, a search warrant was executed at Camilla's family home. Police scoured the property for evidence of an additional mobile phone that Camilla may have used to communicate with Renee. As the fictional Braden, Officers couldn't find any such phone or SIM card. They seized letters from Renee to Camilla, written during their high school days. Letter in an envelope that Renee had written to Brayden was also found ripped up and discarded in a household bin. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. 
the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Camilla's phone contained two photographs of a man in his early 20s, which appeared to be taken inside of a nightclub. One of the photos, her head was placed on the man's shoulder, and both were smiling broadly at the camera. The second photo was exactly the same, except Camilla had been edited out of the photo. Camilla told police she didn't know who the young man was. She claimed that Renee edited the photo, cropping Camilla out of the photograph, and forwarded it to herself from Camilla's phone to maintain the persona of Brayden. Camilla also told police that the collage of photos of Renee and Brayden, which was found in Renee's car at the Gap, was made by Renee herself. On both of Camilla's phone and laptop, police found a saved post from a Facebook account in the name of Daniel Spiteri. Camilla initially told police that while she didn't know who the man was, he was no relation to Brayden. Camilla then changed her story, stating that Daniel was the boyfriend of one of her ex-work colleagues. When officers concluded their search of Camilla's home, they asked her if there was anything she wanted to tell them, why she'd pretend to be Brayden. Camilla told investigators she had been Brayden since at least November 2011, adding, I was sending the text messages to Renee in March. Renee asked me to. She wanted me to pretend that I was Brayden. I just did it because she wanted me to. I didn't do anything else. What's going to happen to me? None of what Camilla said made sense, given Renee and her relationship with Ian in March 2013 to be with Brayden. At the time, Renee had told a friend she wouldn't have left Ian. She didn't think Brayden was real. Whether Renee and Camilla's families would have disapproved of them being in an intimate relationship as Camilla claimed didn't even appear relevant. The Facebook and text messages obtained so far showed that Renee didn't want to be, or indeed was not, an intimate relationship with Camilla. As police inquiries progressed following the search, it emerged that Camilla had told numerous lies in her previous police interview. Camilla said she never texted Brayden, but that she Facebook messaged him to entice Renee into a conversation. This meant that Camilla's initial suggestion to police that she barely knew Brayden and no contact with him was a lie. On August 5th, Renee did not call Camilla to say that Brayden had no phone credit. Camilla had texted as Brayden, asking Renee to put the credit on. Camilla also failed to tell police on September 23rd that she'd continue to send texts as Brayden after she'd returned home from her July trip in the U.S. And specifically on August 5th, there were too many loose ends. Police made attempts to interview Camilla after September 23rd, but she declined to speak with investigators. When a TV current affairs program managed to track down the young man in the photo that Camilla had edited, 
He confirmed that at the time the photo was taken, he frequented the brewery nightclub. He said he didn't know either Camilla or Renee. The man in question had no idea about Camilla's deception. Felt terribly guilty that Renee pined over his image, thinking he was Braden. Camilla's previous statement to police that all she did as Braden was send texts to Renee was proven to be untrue. As Braden, she had Facebook messaged Renee and sent her gifts, including flowers and cards. As Braden, Camilla also texted Renee's family members, including Teresa, as well as threatening Renee's former boyfriends, Angus and Ian. It was also apparent that Camilla had lied to Teresa on numerous occasions following Renee's disappearance. Camilla told Teresa she hadn't heard from Renee other than Renee's final message from the early evening of August 5th. Camilla then suggested that Renee may have been at Braden's sister's house. Camilla told Teresa Renee took her own life because she was unhappy at home. Camilla also told Renee on August 7th that she'd spoken to Braden on the night Renee disappeared. All these things were completely untrue. In the absence of Camilla's cooperation, police set to work examining a BlackBerry two other phones they'd seized from during the search of Camilla's home. Investigators attempted to download the data from each device to access the content of text messages. Unfortunately, there wasn't as much new information available from the two phones as police had hoped there would be. Some messages were accessible, while others weren't. This included 55 text messages Camilla sent to her friend Melanie on August 5th. Luckily, police were able to recover 19 of these, with one exchange between the pair occurring between 10.51 and 10.59 a.m. Camilla texted, I'm done. Time to move on. Melanie responded, No way. Just wait. Maybe there's a reason. Unfortunately, the BlackBerry was corrupted during the data recovery process. It was evident that any phone and SIM card Camilla had used to contact Renee as Braden had been disposed of. Without the missing device and SIM card, it was impossible to obtain the contents of the text messages Camilla had sent as Braden to Renee. Despite this setback, police pieced together what they could and deduced from Camilla and Renee's phone records the following chronology. From 11.53 a.m. on August 5th, Camilla assumed the identity of Brayden and engaged in a text exchange with Renee, including a request to put credit on Brayden's phone. The exchange culminated at 1.18 p.m. when Renee received the message from Brayden ending their relationship. A distressed Renee then sent three text messages to Camilla, all prior to 1.31 p.m., no doubt seeking support from her close friend over the devastating news she just received. But Camilla didn't reply. Camilla then sent five texts to Melanie between 1.32 and 1.37 p.m., which were later deleted. At 1.39 p.m., Camilla texted Melanie about relationship issues she was having with her boyfriend, Michael. At 1.45 p.m., Camilla then responded to Renee as Braden, but the nature of the message was unknown. At 3.43 p.m., around half an hour after Camilla texted Teresa as Brayden, saying that Renee was threatening to kill herself, 
Camilla texted Michael asking him if he'd be coming to watch her soccer game that weekend. At 4 p.m., Camilla texted another friend, saying she was going to delete her Facebook account. Shortly after, Renee drove away from her family home, headed for the eastern suburbs. While Renee was en route to Watson's Bay, Camilla and Melanie exchanged more texts about Michael between 4.28 and 4.32 p.m. Camilla was also using the internet at that time. Following Renee's arrival at Watson's Bay at around 5.20 p.m., she sent Brayden six texts before 5.40 p.m. At 5.30 p.m., Camilla called Melanie and spoke to her for seven and a half minutes. A few minutes after the phone call ended, Camilla is Brayden to Renee's texts. Police determined that Camilla would have seen Renee's final text message to her friend, sent at 5.47 p.m. That evening, after Teresa contacted Camilla to ask if she'd heard from Renee, Camilla had a text exchange with Michael where she complained about his lack of availability to see her. These messages showed that Camilla was callously indifferent to Renee's welfare at best, totally absorbed in her relationship with Michael. The text between the various parties involved on that day provided a disjointed and fragmented narrative, to say the least. Some text messages sent to Camilla to Teresa and other contacts on the day Renee disappeared remained on Camilla's phone, but most had been deleted. It was clear to investigators that Camilla had deliberately done this in a calculated manner. This included deleting all messages she'd sent to Melanie as well as Renee's final message to Camilla, sent at 5.47 p.m. The content of the messages Camilla sent to Renee as Brayden after 1 p.m. was not known, but Teresa couldn't help but feel that if Camilla felt the need to contact her as Brayden, seeing that Renee was threatening to kill herself, the messages that Camilla had sent as Brayden to Renee must have been incredibly blunt and brutally nasty. Luring Renee into a relationship with Brayden, Camilla experienced being in an intimate relationship with Renee by proxy. Despite Renee being completely oblivious to the deception, Camilla catfished Renee to coerce and control not just as a best friend, but also as Brayden's girlfriend. By taking over Renee's life socially, Camilla essentially had Renee to herself, excluding others from her life. The exhaustive efforts by Renee's family and police inquiries into Camilla's actions in the years leading up to Renee's disappearance uncovered the extent of Camilla's gross betrayal and deception. But police were unable to identify sufficient evidence to lay any charges against Camilla under existing laws such as obtaining financial advantage by deception, stalking, extortion, or identity theft. In New South Wales, Catfishing in and of itself, despite the intent to coerce and control a targeted individual and the resulting harm it causes, is not a criminal offense. The only offense which may have applied in this case was the use of a carriage service to menace, harass, or cause offense, which carried a maximum penalty of three years in jail. But the burden of proof for charging Camilla with such an offense was high. The available evidence indicated that a conviction was an unlikely outcome. The lack of resolution for Renee's family was gut-wrenching. 
But the coronal inquest was yet to come, and with it, the Marsden family's hope of recommendation to criminalize catfishing. The Marsdens pushed for the inquest to be held as soon as possible, represented their last public opportunity to not only find out the truth from Camilla, about what led to Renee's disappearance, but the reason for Camilla's deception. The coroner's role would not necessarily to be to apportion blame, but primarily to make a formal finding into Renee's disappearance in the hope that similar circumstances would be prevented in the future. The Marsdens pinned their hopes on the coroner's powers to make recommendations regarding the implementation of new legislation or amendment of existing laws as preventative measure. In the meantime, the Marsden family's struggles to pursue their own inquiries continued because Renee was still officially recorded as a missing person. Teresa couldn't even access her eldest daughter's bank records. Teresa and Mark were incredibly frustrated, but they didn't give up. Instead of sitting at home feeling like she was doing nothing, in 2014, Teresa traveled up and down the east coast of Australia, as far north as the Gold Coast in the neighboring state of Queensland. She put up posters in public places and shop fronts in the hope that someone, anyone, would contact her or police with further information. Part 6. You Make Me Sick Thanks to the assistance of a coronial advocate, on February 10, 2020, the inquest commenced into Renee's disappearance and presumed death. Outside court, before proceedings got underway, her stepbrother Mark told the media, We've been waiting six years for the truth to come out, so hopefully, during the course of the next few days, we'll get that truth. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that in the opening statement by the counsel assisting the coroner, the inquest heard that Camilla and Renee were said to be romantically involved during high school. Despite Teresa and Mark's firm view that the friendship had never developed into anything more. Certainly from Renee's perspective, anyway. The brief of evidence prepared for the coroner included CCTV footage from The Gap. Statements from Renee's friends, family, colleagues, and investigators. Copies of Facebook messages, phone records, and text messages. Also included was a letter from a psychologist to Camilla's doctor from late May 2013, describing what was going on in Camilla's life. Two weeks prior to Christmas 2012, she separated from her boyfriend of six months. This caused significant stress in her family's life, whereby she experienced physical and psychological abuse. The separation caused ongoing stalking, which had led to police complaints. She was unable to obtain an apprehended violence order against him, continues to experience fear of safety in her life. Camilla was legally compelled to give evidence at the inquest, but was granted immunity because she was the key to unlocking the truth. When Camilla took the stand, counsel assisting the coroner told her, the reality of the situation was that Renee had ended the friendship with you. She didn't go and watch your soccer match the Sunday before. There was further consolidation in your mind that the friendship was over. And you knew the way to hurt Renee was for Brayden to break up with Renee. That's what happened. Teresa felt pity when she saw Camilla at the inquest. It was the first time she'd laid eyes on her in almost seven years. 
She hoped Camilla would come clean and tell the truth, at least acknowledging that she had concocted Brayden, at least under the guise of youthful recklessness. But as Camilla began to give her evidence, any pity Teresa felt quickly evaporated. Camilla denied ever physically abusing Renee, following her to college, work, or in public places, or waiting for her outside work or her home uninvited. Camilla claims she couldn't recall the meeting at the cafe in 2009 with her mother, Renee and Teresa, where she refused to allow Renee to leave. Camilla told the inquest that Renee intentionally said she'd always be in a relationship with someone else, so the Marsdens wouldn't know that she and Camilla were together. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, Camilla told the inquest that she and Renee resumed contact during Renee's relationship with Angus. She expressed how she felt, and I expressed how I still felt. She still had feelings towards me. She didn't want to see me with anybody else. Camilla told the inquest that both she and Renee created the fictional persona of Brayden together in early November 2011. Camilla couldn't explain how the name Brayden Spiterius had been selected. Camilla explained that she and Renee wanted to pursue an intimate relationship, but that both their families were opposed to the idea. She stated that they had both purchased a SIM card, which was registered in Camilla's name, as Renee had no ID at the time. This was determined to be a lie, as ID isn't required to purchase a prepaid SIM card. The real reason the SIM card was registered in Camilla's name was because she alone purchased it. Camilla claimed that the arrangement was that she would use the SIM card and another phone to contact Renee as Brayden. The women would tell their families that Brayden was incarcerated, which would explain why Renee had never met him. Coroner didn't accept that Renee edited the nightclub photo or that she sent it to herself. Camilla's claim that the women used Brayden as a cover to maintain an intimate relationship was not supported by the evidence. Renee pursued intimate relationships with men and only wanted to be friends with Camilla. There was no evidence that during the time Renee was in a relationship with the person she thought was Brayden, that she and Camilla were ever anything more than friends, despite the phone records directly contradicting Camilla's claims. She was adamant that Renee knew Brayden was fictional and that Camilla was behind the communications. Camilla couldn't explain how she expected Renee and Brayden's relationship would end. After Camilla returned from the U.S. in July, she contacted both Michael and Melanie. She contacted Renee as Brayden. Camilla did not contact Renee to say she wanted to end the charade because Camilla knew Renee had already ended the friendship. When Camilla was asked about the nature of the text messages between Brayden and Renee on August 5th, why she had deleted those messages and disposed of the device she'd used to send them, she didn't have an explanation. The coroner found that Camilla's text to her friend Melanie on the morning of August 5th saying, I'm done, likely related to Camilla's relationship with Michael, and now her friendship with Renee. Camilla failed to tell police that she had been messaging Renee all afternoon as Brayden. Camilla told the inquest that even though she wasn't aware Renee called Goldburn Jail at 2.44 p.m., Renee would have done this to stay in character. In yet another lie, Camilla claimed Renee was always threatening to kill herself. Camilla told the inquest she didn't know that Renee was at Watson's Bay or was seriously considering taking her own life. 
saying she didn't believe Renee would act on this. Camilla stated that as far as she could remember, after texting his Brayden, telling Renee the relationship was over, Renee said several times that she didn't find a purpose in life. The coroner found out that this was likely true, but Camilla lied to the inquest, claiming she couldn't remember what was said between herself and Renee and Brayden and Renee on August 5th. She stated she could only remember the final text message from Renee, which said, I'm sorry, I love you. The coroner was incredulous at this statement. Camilla's phone records contradicted her claim that she couldn't say when she read the final text message from Renee and didn't receive the message at 5.47 p.m. when it was sent. Camilla's call with Melanie from 5.30 to 5.38 p.m. and text to another friend at 6.03 p.m. proved that Camilla had both phones with her. She must have seen Renee's text in amongst being preoccupied with talking to Melanie and ruminating over relationship issues with Michael. Camilla told the inquest that she continued to maintain that Brayden was real after Renee's disappearance because she wasn't sure if Renee was coming back. I knew she was at the Gap when they told me she was at the Gap, but I didn't know she had jumped. However, this was contradicted by Camilla telling her boyfriend Michael the next morning that Renee had committed suicide at the Gap. Camilla told the inquest she couldn't remember providing a written police statement in late August or talking to investigators, despite the tangible police evidence that she did both these things. Camilla said the reason she didn't tell police on September 23rd that she and Renee used Brayden as a ruse to facilitate their intimate relationship was because her parents were present during the conversation. Camilla told the inquest she no longer wanted to continue the intimate relationship with Renee because their families wouldn't approve. Like Camilla, her friend Melanie told the inquest that Renee was always threatening to harm herself. The coroner was dismissive of this claim, finding it gratuitous and unfounded, designed only to support Camilla's claims. The Daily Telegraph reported that a sobbing Teresa addressed Camilla in her statement to the court. Could have apologized for what you have done, but instead you took the path of deceit and lies. I don't know how you sleep at night knowing you were given an opportunity to tell the truth. One day you will be a mom, and I would not wish this pain on you. In her closing statement, counsel assisting the coroner told the inquest that Camilla had deprived the Marsden family of answers. Consul asked the coroner to consider recommending existing legislation be changed in order to criminalize catfishing. Camilla, as Braden, asserted mental control over Renee through incessant texting and apparent monitoring of her phone and Facebook messages. Camilla was able to successfully dominate and control Renee's mental and emotional life via Braden. Ultimately, it was the false reality created by Camilla that led to Renee falling from the gap and causing her death. This case is truly a tragic set of circumstances that the intentional and ongoing deceitful actions of Camilla was not enough for the police to take action and arrest and charge Camilla with any criminal offense has been truly confounding and inexplicable to the family. That there is no apparent criminal sanction available is truly the deepest insult to the family no doubt the community. During Camilla's evidence, 
She did not appear contrite or to have any remorse. She continued to lie repeatedly, with the coroner ultimately describing her evidence as disingenuous at best and ultimately nothing but a pack of lies. Camilla knew that if Brayden broke things off, Renee would be devastated, claiming that she tried to talk to Renee about ending the Brayden relationship. Camilla had the power to tell the truth and relieve some of the incredible pain and suffering the Marsdens were experiencing, but chose not to. It's not difficult to conclude that Camilla came to court with no intention of telling the truth. A 27-year-old woman, under the protection of immunity, cannot and will not right those wrongs, is incomprehensible. The coroner found that Renee wanted Camilla to find happiness with someone, the way Renee had with Brayden. Indeed, Camilla was in a relationship with Michael when Renee disappeared, but the coroner didn't believe that that was the reason Camilla decided to end the Brayden-Renee relationship. The coroner concluded that the reason Camilla lied to the inquest, maintained the Brayden persona, denied being Brayden, destroyed evidence of text messages, was to avoid being found responsible for hurting Renee. The coroner cited Camilla's inability to admit to having grossly betrayed Renee's trust as evidence that Camilla didn't at any stage tell Renee she was Brayden. The coroner concluded that Renee had no role in the creation of the character of Brayden, nor did she think Renee was experiencing mental illness or a break with reality, or that she thought that a fictional persona that she and Camilla concocted had become a real person. Renee wasn't gullible or unintelligent. She was deeply in love with and committed to someone she believed to be a real person and whom she was looking forward to building a future with. The coroner found that Camilla felt that Renee's failure to attend the soccer game on August 4th was a definitive sign that Renee no longer wanted to be friends. For Camilla, it was an unforgivable insult. Camilla felt the need to punish Renee for ending the friendship by having Brayden probably end their relationship and break her heart. It would be the ultimate act of control, shatter Renee's world. The coroner accepted that Renee messaged Camilla late in the evening of August 5th, not because Camilla necessarily had credibility as a witness, but because Renee likely did send a heartfelt message to her friend. The coroner didn't accept that Camilla accidentally deleted Renee's last text message. She found it unclear whether Camilla knew Renee was at Watson's Bay, but didn't find there was anything to suggest that Camilla cited Renee to take her life. The coroner concluded that Renee didn't learn that Brayden was fictional or that she had been catfished, let alone by Camilla. If she had, Renee would have been trying to contact Camilla all afternoon, but she didn't. The coroner determined that Renee deliberately slipped from the clifftop at the gap with the intent to take her life as a result of Brayden ending their relationship. The coroner was of the view that Renee died of fatal fall injuries, that her body was swept out to sea. The coroner stopped short of recommending catfishing being made a crime without further investigation, saying, though such contact may cause the recipient mental and or physical harm, because it is not conduct committed with the necessary intent. It falls outside the perimeters of a known state criminal offense. There are complex matters 
which were not canvassed at the inquest, which need to be taken into account before any coronial recommendation involving the introduction of criminal legislation. Accordingly, I do not make such a recommendation. What the coroner did recommend was an in-depth review to be undertaken by the Domestic Violence Death Review Team in conjunction with New South Wales Police about what forms of behavior are being targeted under the existing criminal offense of stalking or intimidation. This review includes examining whether expanding the definition of domestic and personal violence would capture catfishing. Accordingly, the Domestic Violence Death Review Report tabled in New South Wales Parliament in March 2020 recommended that the extent to which existing New South Wales laws respond adequately to non-physical forms of domestic and family violence and to cumulative patterns of violence rather than separate incidents be examined. It was cold comfort to Renee's family but it started the conversation about recognizing how catfishing was dangerous and abusive an act which could have fatal consequences. With the inquest concluded, Renee's close cousin Stephanie gave a prepared media statement outside court. Renee, with my 20 years shared with her, I'd say her smile was infectious. She had a heart that radiated love to anyone who knew her. She guided those around her to always see the best in others and look at every situation with positivity. She was kind undoubtedly generous, everyone's biggest supporter. Renee was not only physically attractive, but emotionally and spiritually beautiful. Ultimately, I believe it was such traits that made her susceptible to such malicious crimes. Because honestly, you would never suspect that your friend would catfish you. She was fun-loving, bubbly, and empathetic. In today's society, with the dominance of social media... We find many people in similar situations as Renee. It's not a lack of intelligence or being gullible that makes you a victim of catfishing, particularly when you are as accepting and loving as our dear Renee. Unfortunately, it's good people that get taken advantage of. It was a trap set up by someone who knew her best. Thus, it was undeniably the optimal environment for one to trust a friend and start communication with the persona of Brayden. Renee was an individual who deserved to live a full life, not be robbed of such simple pleasures and freedom. Her only guilt would be that she loved too easily and lived a life with her heart on her sleeve. She could be any one of you. The odds of this happening are increasing as social media expands. This has been seen more through online dating. Furthermore, this inquest was not a simple catfishing case, and nor will it ever be. It was a twofold story. One of violence through the means of a friendship ridden with lies, gaslighting, manipulation, evidence of intimidation and stalking, and emotional and physical abuse over the course of more than eight years. Secondly, the same person decided to execute her final act and catfish Renee. It's for this reason we hope the government will start living in this modern digital age, comprehend that laws need to be reviewed to protect the innocent. We hope with the recommendations that the laws surrounding domestic abuse will start to include emotional and psychological abuse, or that a new framework can be introduced for illegal activity with technology. 
We hope Renee's story can prevent any others falling victim and stress the pivotal importance that people committing these crimes are held accountable for their actions so justice can be served. Renee is forever around us and lives through us. Every family deserves answers. Camilla continues to live not far from the Marsdens. Only she knows what was said between herself as Brayden and Renee on August 5th. While there is no question that Camilla's behavior in deceiving Renee and maintaining an abusive friendship was despicable, it's not illegal. At least, not yet. Renee's family continues to campaign vigorously for catfishing to be criminalized. Teresa fights an internal battle every day, but maintains her unshakable hope and faith that one day there will be answers. She wants justice for Renee, despite the conclusion of the inquest of the coroner publicly and unequivocally denouncing Camilla's behavior. The family is still without answers. Teresa told Obscura, Renee was a beautiful person, very kind, free-spirited. She would always be there to help anybody. At the end of the day, that's what Camilla played on. It's a slap in the face she can go into court, be given immunity and lie. She made a whole joke. She made a mockery of our judicial system. She's getting away with it. I just can't understand how she can get away with it and live her life. And we're still picking up the pieces and continue to. That's why this is my journey now. To try to get the laws changed. To make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. Now more than ever, social media dominates our lives. At the click of a button, it's easy to connect with people over numerous online platforms. You've never even met in real life. And if someone is a friend of a friend, it's even easier. Our guard is often immediately lowered. Renee Marsden reasonably thought she could trust someone she'd never met. But who was known to her best friend? That trust was abused in a way beyond anything anyone could have ever imagined. Teresa and Mark have made it their mission to ensure that legislative safeguards are implemented. To ensure that anyone who tries to catfish unsuspecting and trusting people in the future are held accountable. Regardless of where you live, Teresa encourages everyone to familiarize themselves with their local, state, and federal laws regarding the prosecution of catfishing. If you live in Australia, Teresa encourages you to write your state or territory attorney general and local members of parliament to draw their attention to the importance of criminalizing catfishing. We were deeply honored to speak at length with Teresa and Mark Marsden in the process of conducting our research for today's story. We are incredibly grateful to them for sharing their time, memories of Renee, and their ongoing fight for the criminalization of catfishing. It has been seven years since Renee disappeared. Her body has not been recovered. A moving video slideshow dedicated to Renee's memory, put together by her younger sister, was very kindly shared with us by the Marsdens and can be viewed on our website. If anything in today's story has raised any issues for you, including concerns about intimate partner violence, or if someone you know needs help, please see our show notes for this episode on your app or on our website for a list of contact numbers. You can call for confidential support. 
I think that wraps things up. Thank you for listening. Keep the fire burning.